If you would take and turn to the Gospel of John with me. We've been walking our way through the Gospel of John in our morning worship services. We find ourselves in John 3. We're going to skip a few chapters this morning and land in John chapter 20. So John chapter 20. And we're going to focus our attention on the first 10 verses. I know that you just stood. If you would, stand with me again as we honor the reading of Scripture, and then I'll let you sit. Okay? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we approach your word, and we ask you that you would guide us. Lord, we, we pray that you would use your word in tremendous ways in our lives. Lord, the, the message of the resurrection is, is a message of hope. Lord, and I pray that as we leave here this morning, that we would be full of hope, that you would work that in us. May we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and rest solely in him so that when it comes to our hope in life, in life and death, that our hope left us in Christ alone, in Christ alone. Lord, we pray for our church Lord, we pray that you would continue to use it, continue to bless it. Lord, we think of those who are sick, those who are hurting this season, and we ask you to be with them. Lord, we think of the, the monies that have been given and will be given this morning, and we pray that you, would, that you would bless it beyond measure for your purpose, your honor, your glory, that the name of Jesus might be exalted both here and abroad. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now you may be seated. I'm going to to start this message this morning by telling you something that you probably already know. And that is that the greatest historical evidence of the resurrection is the fact that the tomb was empty. There have been all sorts of secular explanations for this, and they are all ridiculous. Like perhaps they went to the wrong tomb. They got confused. They were, they were mixed up. Perhaps the disciples stole the body of Jesus and perpetuated a lie that they were willing to die horrible deaths for. Perhaps the appearances of Jesus after the apparent resurrection were a mass hallucination. But my favorite is what they have called uh, the swoon theory. Of course, there are uh, variations of this, but the central tenet is that after the, the flogging and, and beating and crucifixion of Jesus, that somehow Jesus survived all of this, that he wasn't really dead, but he appeared to be dead. His pulse was so low that people thought he had died, so they prepared him for burial. They buried him, and then somehow he woke up later got out of the the wrapping that he was in, got out of the tomb, passed the Roman guards, appeared to several people without them even realizing that he needed substantial medical attention. To quote Matt Chandler, you would have to be an idiot to believe that. But yet, these are the explanations that are offered when it comes to the historical reality of the resurrection. Historically, there was a person. His name was Jesus Christ. It's a historical fact. And anybody that says that Jesus Christ didn't exist is saying that in the face of undeniable evidence for the existence of the the historical person of Jesus. Jesus' death is an undeniable reality. Jesus died at the hands of the Romans by crucifixion, and in the midst of all of these facts, you have the claim of a resurrection, and you have the empty tomb. So historically, the secular mind has to explain the fact that Jesus' tomb that contained him, did not contain him after a couple days after he was placed there. It was sealed shut with Roman guards guarding it. This is why the greatest historical, not theological, but the greatest historical evidence for the resurrection is the empty tomb. You know what else caused some problems here? And this is the more theological side of the coin, and that is because the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen in a vacuum. The resurrection had great meaning and significance. In fact, the resurrection was so important that Jesus himself said it was going to happen, that it needed to happen on several occasions. Go back to John chapter 2 for a moment, right? We just studied this in our time together. John 2, 18 through 22 you got to love how John writes this. So it's the, the Passover, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he finds people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers are filling the temple. And Jesus makes a whip and drives them out of the temple. He pours out the money, overturns table and says, take these things. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. And at this point, the disciples realized the words of Scripture were told. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is what came into the disciples' minds at that moment. It's a quote from Psalm 69.9. I think it's fascinating that Jesus does these things. Even in that moment, Jesus is doing this, teaching the disciples a lesson. That everything that he's doing is a, is a lesson. It's pointing the disciples to the fact that he is the Christ. He is the one that the scriptures are speaking of. But after this, Jesus gets into a conversation with the Jews. And they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them by just saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Of course, the Jews are confused and they say, well, it's taken us over four decades to build this thing and you're going to build it in three days? I mean, they thought he was somewhat crazy, I suppose. But John, as he likes to do, adds some commentary and says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Isn't that something? Everything that Jesus does is a lesson pointing to himself. And in this case, it's pointing the fact that he must raise. John points something out at the onset of the gospel, and that is that Jesus would die, that he would be raised from the dead. He predicts it here. But like the Jews, the disciples didn't get it and would not until after the resurrection. It is then that they would believe. And in John chapter 20, we read that when John went into the tomb, he went in and he saw, and what? He believed. He saw the, the grave close, right? Title of the message is the, the, the almost empty tomb because there was grave clothes in there. He saw those grave clothes and it all came rushing back. All of these things that Jesus said, starting with that scene in John 2, that conversation about building the temple in three days made sense. And he believed in that moment. But in fact, there are a number of times in which Jesus spoke of the resurrection during his ministry. Let's just take a, a look at those instances quickly before we get into the, the morning of, of the Easter morning. Look with me, at, and if you want to flip here, or you can just listen, but Matthew chapter 12, I'll start, I'll start in uh, verse 38, really. This came after Jesus had some words with the religious leaders of the day, even referring to them as a, a brood of vipers that are evil and do not speak good for what is in their heart comes out their mouth. And that on that day of judgment, people are going to have to give an account for every careless word that they speak. In fact, he says that it is by one's words that they will be condemned because it illustrates what is in their heart. It's at this point that the scribes and Pharisees ask him to show them a sign. 
They're calling his authority into question and asking him to prove himself. But Jesus says, to you, no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as he was in the belly of the fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Now, we know what happened in the story of of Jonah. The fish, after three days, spits him out on, on dry land. After that, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to the people reluctantly, right? But the people repent. It's a tremendous story. It highlights the the greatness and mercy of God on on Jonah, right, who deserved to be punished, but also on the wicked people of Nineveh who deserved God's judgment but were spared because of their repentant hearts. Jesus then says, something greater than Jonah is here. That is himself, in other words, right? It's through his resurrection that he's going to bring hope and life to countless people. It's what Jonah did in the the, the city of Nineveh on a worldwide scale. Something greater than Jonah is here. Of course, the people didn't grasp what Jesus was saying. But he was certainly referring to his death and resurrection. In Matthew 16... This is where we have the account of Peter's confession of of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they give answers. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is after this exchange that John tells us in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. I think the point that is being made here is that especially during this last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry, that he emphasized to the disciples the necessity of his upcoming death and resurrection. Now, it's true that the disciples didn't grasp the importance and necessity of all of this at that time, but it was still important that Jesus taught them because when it all happened, They would remember, they would see the significance, they would get the meaning, and they would believe. The victory wasn't only in the fact that Jesus could overcome death, how as as significant as that was, but as Paul points out clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus was the first fruits. His His resurrection gave us hope that one day death will not have the last word. Death will not have the victory. Jesus died and was raised again to make eternal life a reality for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One more. John chapter 10. I want us to see these instances where Jesus speaks of the resurrection. So we we grasp this. When John walks into that tomb and it says he he saw this and he believed, What what is his mind doing? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep and everybody and anyone who enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus goes on to speak of himself as the the good shepherd. What does Jesus mean when he refers to himself as a good shepherd? The text tells us a good shepherd is one who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, it's in the the context of Jesus speaking of himself as laying down his life for the sheep that he says this. 
For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Of course, the passage is speaking about Jesus' upcoming death and resurrection, but Jesus does so here a little bit differently. He doesn't only say that he's going to die and come back to life, but he makes the point that like a good shepherd who chooses to give his life for his sheep, so will Jesus give his life for those who are his. It's not going to be taken from him. Now, of course, that's how it's going to look, though. It'll look like Jesus was wrongly convicted. He died for something that he didn't do at the hands of godless men. And while that is true, Peter says so as much in Acts chapter 2, but there's also an element here of God's sovereignty that Jesus is making a, a, a tremendous point. God is, is sovereign when it comes to his own life in laying it down and both in taking it up. Think about this for a moment from the perspective of the sheep. And by the way, you are the sheep here. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then you are the sheep. If you've walked through him as the door, through belief and trust, right? That's verse 9. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved. Looking at this from the perspective of the sheep, that not only will Jesus give his life for you, he has, and it's not only he has given it, but he's taken it up again. Just think of a shepherd that gives his life for the sheep for a moment. How noble that is. That he would go to those lengths to protect the sheep from a wolf. Put it in our vernacular, right? A, a husband protects his wife from a criminal. He steps in, tries to save his wife, but in the process he loses his life. Noble. What happens to the wife? What happens to the sheep when the shepherd dies? I think Jesus' point here is that he is not going to let anything happen to those who are his. Yes, like a good shepherd, he will die for sheep, but he will also take up his life again and continually protect and guide those who are his. Death does not have the last word. Again, I want to bring these passages up here to help us see something, and that is what exactly, what John believed that day when he walked into the tomb and he saw the grave close there. I want to point out one more thing here before we get to, to Easter morning, and that is Jesus' predictions, the prediction of his death and resurrection were common knowledge in the day. It wasn't just that a few people heard these things. This was the subject of, of Jesus' preaching. It, it must have been. It was a subject of, of conversation. It wasn't a secret that only the disciples knew. It was actually the, the talk all over the place. And I'm sure, by the way, that at the end of Jesus' ministry, when people talked of Jesus, they spoke of the audacious claims that he made concerning his life and resurrection. Matthew 27. Specifically, the very end of that chapter. Just I'll, I'll start reading it in verse 62. This is the, the day after Jesus was prepared and, and put in the tomb. So Saturday morning, the next day, right? Saturday morning, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, we remember how that imposter said, well, he was still alive. After three days, I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. So they went, they made the tomb secure, sealing a stone and setting a guard. The point is simple, isn't it? That it was common knowledge that Jesus said he would die and raise from the dead three days later. That is the reason that there was a, a great stone there who was sealed in soldiers that were guarding the tomb. It all has to do with Jesus' prediction of raising from the dead. It was no secret. So with that background, let's turn our attention to Easter morning and just kind of try to take all of the accounts of that and, and put them to, together here a little bit. Now, Jesus was killed on Friday. That's what most people believe. A fewer number would say that he was killed on Thursday. There's evidence for that as well. Whenever exactly Jesus died, we'll say it was on Friday. He was in the tomb until the resurrection. And, and the resurrection happened before dawn on Sunday morning. It was about this time, about dawn, when women came to the tomb bringing spices to anoint the body of Jesus. There was a good group of women here. There was at least four, perhaps more, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, others. The women started when it was dark. They arrived at early dawn it was that time when it was, it was difficult to make things out, right? The sun is just coming up. It's, it's hard to see. When they got there, though, they noticed the stone was removed from the entrance. It was obvious to them that something had happened. Things are going through their mind. Was Jesus' body stolen? Was it moved? Was it desecrated? Had somebody taken it? They didn't know what to do, so they sent Mary Magdalene to go and tell the disciples. To go and tell Peter and John. It's interesting at this point that nobody imagined that Jesus rose from the dead. They just knew something had happened. As the sun had come up a little more, it was easier to see, and by now the women went and looked into the tomb, and they saw angels there, and the women were afraid, naturally, but the angelic messengers told them to not be afraid. And we read in Matthew 28, 5 through 7, that the one they were looking for, the one who was crucified, Jesus was not there for he had risen. The angels tell them to, to look at the place where he laid, and then they tell those women to go and tell the disciples. Meanwhile, remember Mary Magdalene, she left before this. She went to find the disciples. She found Peter and John, most likely at John's house, where they had taken Jesus' mom the day of the crucifixion. We read that in John 19, 27, by the way. So at this point, we get that famous scene that we just read in John chapter 20, our, our focus text, where Peter and John are running to the tomb, leaving Mary in the dust. John outruns Peter and gets there first and stops at the entrance and peeks in and sees the, the grave clothes in there. Peter gets there, pushes John out of the way, goes in the tomb. Actually, the, the Greek here is, is 
so interesting. When John sees the grave closed from the doorway, so before Peter pushes him out of the way, the word for seeing is belepo. It's a general word for seeing. He saw something. It's a common word. It just suggests what he saw when he went in. Peter rushes in the tomb, and we read that he saw the grave clothes sitting there. He really scrutinized them. Peter looks at the grave clothes. This is John 20, 6 and 7, by the way. As Peter looks at the grave clothes, John uses a different word. It's a, more, it's a special word. It's theero. And it's where we get our word theater or theory. So he's, he's looking at this. He's studying it. Peter goes in the tomb and he sees the, the strips of, of linen lying there and he sees the, the cloth that had been around Jesus' head. It was folded and it was separate from the rest. So Peter is, is thinking about what he is seeing. Then John comes in. He sees what Peter sees. This is verse 8. And the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in and he saw and believed. Now, as you can imagine, saw and believed is a single word in the Greek. It's a different word. It's horero, which means to see and understand, to see and believe. Not just to see and theorize, not just to study it intently, but to see and understand it, to grasp it, to believe what had happened. In that moment, he knew. Now, it was after this, and I think this is important, it was after this that we're told that, that John saw and believed. It's after this moment that John saw and believed that the appearances of Jesus start. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who arrives at the tomb, right? She was left in the dust, so she's still coming. She gets there. Peter and John go back to the city. Mary Magdalene gets there. He appears, Jesus appears to her. And he appears to Peter, then to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then all the disciples when they were gathered in the upper room. It's important to understand that when all of the disciples saw the risen Lord, they believed. But John, first. And it was before he saw the risen Lord. He saw the grave clothes and he believed. Here's my question. What is it that made John believe? What did he see that convinced him? I think at this point, it's good to understand how a Jew... I'm going to take a while answering that question, by the way. Um, it's good to understand at this point how Jewish burials worked. So in some places, like Egypt, bodies were prepared by embalming them. In Rome and Greece, they were cremated. Bodies were burned. In Palestine, they were not embalmed. They were not cremated. They were wrapped in linen bands, and they were enclosed in dry spaces and placed face up, no coffin of any sort. They were laid in a tomb, which was usually cut in the side of a hill. Another thing that's interesting here is that the bodies were wrapped in such a way as to leave the, the face, the neck, and the upper part of the shoulders bare. The head was then wrapped in a cloth that had been twirled around, somewhat like a, a turban. And this is most likely how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus. So the body was 
removed from the cross before the, the beginning of the, the Sabbath, Saturday. It was, it was washed. It was wrapped in these linen bands with 75 pounds of, of spices uh, inserted into the folds of the linen. Aloe was like sawdust kind of. Myrrh was a, a fragrant gum that would have been mixed in the powder. Jesus was encased in this. But his head and neck and shoulders were bare. There was another piece that went on his head. And the body was placed in the tomb till sometime very early Sunday morning. So now, with that in mind, if we were in that tomb, what would have we seen if we were there when the resurrection occurred? At that moment when Jesus was raised, what would have we seen? Would have there been a, a struggle of Jesus to get out of there, right? He's wrapped in this. It's going crazy. 75 pounds of spice. I mean, what if he opened his eyes and struggled for a while to get out? That wouldn't have been resurrection. That would have been more akin, akin to the swoon theory that we mentioned at the start. A, a resuscitation. It could have been. Um, or it would have been like the resurrection of, of Lazarus, where uh, he got back his natural body, right? Lazarus was raised in his, his natural body. This isn't, this isn't what happened with Jesus. He wasn't raised in a natural body. He was raised in a spiritual body. If we were there at the moment of the resurrection, we would have noticed either that the body of Jesus would have disappeared, or that it was changed into a, a resurrection body, as it, it were, by passing through the, the grave clothes, and out of the tomb, just as later he passed through closed doors to appear to the disciples in a closed room. John Stott says it this way. The body was vaporized, being transmutated into something new, different, and wonderful. So, so thinking about the resurrection this way, the, the, the linen clothes with the 75 pounds of spices packed in the, in the folds, would have, would have subsided, right? Jesus' body is gone. It, it just sinks a little, right? The body was removed. It, it would have looked the same, but without the, the body in the middle. The weight would have caused it to, to lay more, flat kind of, like a balloon that had lost its air kind of. But notice that the, the bottom part was there. These grave clothes would have laid there undisturbed. Jesus didn't fight his way out of them. The, the cloth that was around Jesus' head didn't have the, the weight of the spices in it, but it was left by itself separate from the rest of the, the grave clothes because there was nothing around the, the face and the, the neck and the shoulders, right? So it's, it's separate exactly what we're told Peter saw. When they entered the tomb in the murky light of early dawn, they saw the clothes there. But there was something that John noticed. It was significant. But they were all there. In verse 5, the idea is that he said that the grave clothes are lying there. And lying there is emphasized in the sentence in the Greek. They were lying there. He noticed that the clothes were, were undisturbed. They were laying there in, in, in its order, in its place, is how John words it. They were just there, in their place. In other words, they were there just as they have been. It wasn't, 
that the grave clothes had been removed or even disturbed. It was the body of Jesus that had been removed from them. The, the clothes that was around the, the, the cloth that was around the, the head was not with the rest. It was in its place, right? By itself. It retained its shape. It just folded right there. This is what John saw, and he believed. I know this is a long way to answer that question, but I think it's important when we read this account of John walking into the tomb and, and seeing and believing that we must ask the question, what caused him to believe? Well, it's what he saw. It's how he saw it. And then everything that he heard from Jesus about the resurrection came flooding back in that moment. Can you imagine the conversation that could have happened? Check this out, Peter. Did you see this? No one has moved the body. The, the grave clothes haven't been disturbed in the slightest. They're laying there just as they were when Jesus was first put in here, but the body is gone. There's no way this body was stolen. He didn't only appear, he didn't, he didn't appear to be dead and then wake up and have to get out of the grave clothes. He passed right through them, leaving them like this. This is the only explanation. John Stott again says this. At a glance, the grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. Let me just point out a couple things here in closing. The first is that God has given us adequate evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. For someone to suggest there is not evidence has not looked into these things. As Stott says, just one glance at the grave clothes shows the reality of the resurrection. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the mountain of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just make the point this way. If you are here or listening this morning and you do not believe, it isn't because there is a lack of evidence. The second point is that Peter and John's experience here indicates that Jesus' body was a glorified body. Jesus was a real person. He had a 100% human real body. It was a natural body, but he was raised a glorified spiritual body. And now I want you to notice that, that there, is, there is great continuity between Jesus' resurrection body and our resurrection body. There is some discontinuity, right? Jesus was sinless. We're not sinless. But Jesus had a, a real body just the same. He was raised in a spiritual body, and we will as well. We too will be raised, and our bodies, like Jesus' body, will be spiritual. Now, unlike Jesus' earthly body, it wasn't, it wasn't tainted by sin as ours are, our bodies bear the, the weight of, of sin in our world, the deterioration of sin and disease and all that we bear in this body will not be a factor 
in our resurrected body. And it is Jesus' resurrection that highlights this truth because his resurrected body was a glorified body. The resurrection for the Christian is, is the Christian hope. It's the Christian hope because one day we will have a body that will not, that will, that will not only live forever, but it isn't tainted by sin. It isn't corrupted by disease. Jesus' resurrection was the, the forerunner to our resurrection. His resurrected body was the first fruits of our resurrected body. There is a, a sense that we will be like him and, and see him as he is. And that is because of the nature of the resurrection. And that is because it will not be sinful, but our salvation will be complete and glorified. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. There will be no more want for our bodies because they, like his, will be glorified. D.L. Moody, in a message on the resurrection, tells the, the story of a little girl. She was about 15. And I know some young ladies are going to protest and say, wait a minute, you just called a 15-year-old a little girl? Um, I will tell you that that is subjective. When a 15-year-old is cast in the midst of deep suffering because of disease, when her suffering is so great that she is paralyzed on one side, almost blind, and lay on her deathbed, we call her little. Because her life is going to be over at such a young age. Moody tells the story of this young girl lying on a bed, suffering, blind, unable to move, but able to hear and able to speak. She's laying there. She hears the doctor talking to her parents. And the doctor says she has seen her best days. Poor child. Little girl who was a believer replies, no, doctor. My best days are yet to come. And they will come when I shall see the king in all of his beauty. Her hope, our hope, lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So put yourself in, that, in the place of John, so to speak. In, in looking at all of this, right? In, in walking in after all of this information, after all of this background in the New Testament and all of these experiences of what Jesus said and how he pointed to the reality of the resurrection, and as we move to the story and, and start thinking about the significance of, of all of this, that our hope lies in there, put your place, self in the place of John, so to speak, in, in looking at this. Do you believe? Do you have this kind of, of hope? Do you have the kind of hope that the little girl had who was suffering? The fact is, if there's no resurrection, then we're still in our sins. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, my only hope, your only hope, 
in seeing the king in all of his beauty lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. And Lord, I, I pray that, well, first of all, you would be glorified here this morning, that, that you would do with, with your word more than we can imagine, more than we can ask or think. But I, I pray that if, that if there are those here, that if there are those listening this morning that, that do not believe, that haven't placed their faith and, and trust in, in Jesus Christ, there's people here that just don't have that hope. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today they would trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.